Well, good morning. My name is Sam Kastensmith. I'm the headmaster at Bethany Christian School across the street. And it's always a privilege when I, when I have the, the opportunity to come and, and to preach. And uh, this, this morning we're getting into 1 Samuel chapter 7. And uh, this is actually a very, very pivotal, pivotal chapter in the history of Israel. And before we get going, I was joking with Matt earlier this week. I said, hey, if my wife... By the way, this will be my last sermon as a father of two. We've got a little girl on the way. And so Laura's actually been starting to go into to preterm labor, and she's now, she's 36 weeks and change, which makes it safe, but she's now 80% effaced. So this could be a very exciting service. <laughs> Luckily, Connie Kern is a midwife, so I'm feeling good about it. I'm feeling good about it. Uh, but, well, f- funny, true story. When we started this pregnancy, we made a bet. And we bet that I would lose more weight than she gained. And she hasn't gained very much, but I haven't lost any. I, I'm, I'm still as substantial as before. <clears throat> if you ask me too, all right. So today's, today's sermon, the whole message, this whole chapter that we start on today hinges on this notion of Ichabod and Ebenezer. This is one of the more difficult, and I'm just going to be perfectly honest from the onset, this is one of the more difficult sermons I'll ever have to preach. It deals with the depravity of man. And and the extents of his wickedness. And how utterly gross we can be. And yet how amazingly good God is. In spite of that. You know, one of the problems that we have today. So let's say this is the holiness of God. And this is the depravity of man. And our feel-good modern culture, what we like to do is to say, God's standards are not all that high. He doesn't look down on this behavior or that behavior or this behavior. And we try to make the God of the universe, the holy God, we try to bring Him down to our level. And then we've got this self-esteem movement culture that does nothing but say, no, 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 you're good. You're good. Your misbehaviors are not all that bad. And so we make the distance of separation between man and God about that. And guess what? If Christ came to die on a cross to reunite sinners with God, and that's all that separates us from Him, that will be the value of the cross to our culture. Do you see why the Christian faith has become more and more irrelevant to America as we take God and dethrone Him and bring Him to our level and we take fallen men, sinners, and we elevate them and say, no, you're really good. There's the value of your cross. You're on really safe ground when you come to God and you cry out like Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. 
My heart is utterly absorbed with self-centeredness and self-absorption and wickedness. And there's no end to tell what I might do apart from you, God. And your standards are so utterly impossible for me to meet. Your holiness is so far above where I am. And the more you humble yourself and become small in your own eyes, and the more you magnify and exalt the King of glory... That's the size of your cross. That will be the size of the measure of your love for Christ. So as we get into this passage today in 1 Samuel, I want to walk you through just how utterly wicked Israel had become. And by the time we get there, Some of you are probably going to be thinking, I wish God wouldn't show them mercy. They're utterly disgusting. They're utterly revolting. And yet God comes to them and embraces them and restores them and shows compassion on them. And when we sit here today, it's going to be hard because some of the stuff that they do is really revolting. But I want us to be honest enough with ourselves to say that if God truly looks at the heart, not just the outward actions, we are utterly depraved as well. Like we are, we join right in that. We're self-absorbed. Every thought, even our prayers come back to our thoughts. Like It's like the Puritan said, even my tears need washing There's nothing in and of that I offer that ultimately I don't have selfish motives for. I can't get it off of me. I can't get me off of me. And yet God comes and He loves. And so we start in this this book, 1 Samuel, this new series that we're going on. And the big message is there was no king and Israel wants a king. They desperately want a king. And by the time we get done with the first half of this sermon today, you're going to understand why. For sure. Holy moly. Good grief. And Hannah. Remember Hannah? At the beginning of this, she's barren. She can't have a child. She goes to Shiloh, which is the city where the tabernacle is kept. And she sits outside the tabernacle and she's pleading with God, please give me a child. Please give me a child. And she says, if I have them, I give them to you. Lord, bring righteousness back to this land. Bring revival here. Use my son as the catalyst. And she offers up her one and only son. Sound familiar? So that revival will start. And today, in 1 Samuel 7, now Samuel has spoken words, but today he is going to lead the nation in revival. It's a beautiful story. And when you see the depths from which they are redeemed, I want you to know there's not a single person in this room that is too far gone for the Lord. In fact, God's specialty is to go to the very depths of the pit of hell for the lowliest and most hopeless of people. You know, one of my heroes when I study about the church... I love this guy. His name is Father Damien. If you walk through the Capitol, you'll see the statue. It's in every state gets to contribute two statues to the, the, the statuary hall in the U.S. Capitol. 
And one of Hawaii's is a guy named Father Damien. He's not American. And he didn't even come to Hawaii when it was a U.S. state. It was actually a kingdom at the time. But Father Damien was born and he desperately wanted to be a priest. He desperately wanted to be a priest, but he was the youngest of five brothers. So his parents couldn't afford an education for him. So he couldn't learn Latin and all the other things. And so he didn't get to become a priest. His brother did, though, and his brother grew, was ordained, was decided, they say, hey, you're going to be a missionary, you're going to go to Hawaii, and this is before it was thought of as a paradise, by the way. And so he's pumped, he's ready to give his life for Christ, to go halfway around the world, and right at the last minute, he gets sick. And they say, who's going to go in his place? And Damien, me, I want to go. And he learns... Latin and he gets ordained and he gets in a boat and he sails halfway around the world and he goes to this island, the island of Molokai. Now, Jack London called at Molokai the pit of hell. It doesn't look like the pit of hell. It looks nice. The most cursed place on earth. The reason why he called it the pit of hell and the most cursed place on earth is at this time the kingdom of Hawaii had taken its people who were diseased, who had contracted something called Hansen's disease that we know as leprosy, who were literally rotting to death. And they would export them to this, the fifth largest island in Hawaii. And it was its own prison. The the cliffs were too steep. They couldn't get down. They were stuck there. And they would give them resources. They would say, here, here's all the alcohol you can drink and occasionally we'll drop in some food. And so what happened to these lepers? They lost in any sense of the dignity of God. They lost any sense that they were worth something. They had been abandoned. They had been shoved off, outcast treated by the rest of the world as the very lowest of the low. And they devolve into sin with that kind of perspective of who they are. And they become debauched and drunk. And the things they do on Molokai Island are unbelievable. And so Damien gets there and Damien shows up and they tell him, okay, this is how you're to minister. You've got to put on this sheet to prevent contact and to save yourself. You know, only 5% of people have an immune system that doesn't reject Hansen's disease. So it's unlikely, but still you're going to wear this garment, this robe and everything else. And you're going to go and you're going to lay the food down and then back away from it. So you don't come into contact with these people. And Damien can put up with that for about three days. And at the end of three days, he's seeing all these people so desperately broken and hopeless and humiliated. And he takes the sheet off and he throws it down and he goes out and he hugs them. The priest, a priest from Europe, coming and embracing them as brothers. And he goes out and he serves them and he builds homes for them and he starts teaching them about industry. And this pit of hell, Molokai, the most cursed place on earth, becomes a haven for revival. And when Damien writes home to his brother, he says this, I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all to Jesus Christ. I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all to Jesus Christ. 
And as we read through the story, like this example, this is what Jesus does for you. You don't, we don't realize how hopeless and debauched we are until our lives fall apart. And Jesus comes into this world to take our sin upon Himself, to take our poverty upon Himself, to take our desperation, to take our shame, to take all of the stuff that we deserve, the spiritual leprosy that is eating us alive. Jesus shows up into the world and He becomes a leper so that we can become the ever-righteous and cleansed Children of God. My wife, uh, in high school, ever since high school, she's always wanted to be a missionary. She wanted to be a missionary to Russia, maybe Ukraine. In fact, she was a, a missionary to Ukraine for three and a half years. When I was in high school, I wanted to go on a, just even be an exchange student to Costa Rica, and my Spanish teacher told me that I was a bad example of an American. <laughs> <clears throat> Ah, uh, Mrs. Green. <laughs> anyway, and she was probably, she was right back then. But my wife, when she went to apply and, and was getting all of her stuff together to go into the mission field, they said, okay, where do you want to go? And she gave her responses. And they said, you know, where do you feel called? And where do you not feel called? She gave them two answers. You want to know what they are? Haiti and India. Do you know why that's ironic? Because those are the two nations that this church supports. Now she has a heart for Haiti and India, just saying, just, just to clarify. But why? When you think of those two nations, if you know, if you know much about them or if you know missionaries who've been there, especially in the past, they're dark. You know, it's like Jack London describes Hawaii, Molokai as the pit of hell, the most cursed place on earth. You go to Hawaii especially, or I'm sorry, if you go to Haiti in the, in the last before the earthquake or right after the earthquake. I mean, it's, it's utterly poor. The land is devastated. They practice voodoo. They've got all kinds of weird things going on. It feels lawless. There's no order. When you're riding through Port-au-Prince, at least the heart of it, you're kind of going, can, can we go a little faster? You know, it's, it's a rough place. And in your heart, you say, no, 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 no. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. But I'll tell you what, when Ryan and I went there, next slide, we found that these places where the Christians have gone in after the earthquake, where this pastor and the village we went to had established ridiculous numbers of churches, even if they were just sticks and a tarp, but man, when you heard those people worship, when you heard them shouting out with everything that they had, and by the way, totally coincidence, the songs, the first song I heard them sing was, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. And man, they sing it with all of their hearts. It's like deafening. You walk into the schools where Christ is being taught. Now, it's deafening. The Christian Post is saying that by increasingly large numbers, the Haitian people are turning away from voodoo, which they have always kind of intermingled with Christianity, and they're leaving that behind. And Christianity is now surging in Haiti. The Ichabod, 
the, the, the pit of hell, the most cursed place on earth, when Christ comes into it, he transforms it to make it beautiful. And you know what? I, Brian and I both left Pignon Haiti kind of going, oh, we like it here. <laughs> it's so relaxed and peaceful. Or you look to India and just the history of them. Where, you know, back one of their ancient practices was that when a man died, they would take the, the wife, the, the widow and the orphans if they were too young, and they would throw them on a, a funeral pyre. Because what good is a woman or kids without a man? And it's not until British colonization and Christian ethics come in that that even begins to change. Or you see this still today where widows are now shunned by families. And when you go to India, there's actually a town with thousands upon thousands of widows because when their husbands die, they're seen as cursed because Hinduism teaches a lot of really kooky things. It's a religion that worships 330 million gods. Try that on for your personal worship. 330 million gods, they worship Virtually everything except those that suffer. Those that suffer are seen as cursed. So the widow, cursed. The orphan, cursed. You go to to India in some places and you'll see sites like this where they worship rats and leave milk bowls out for rats while they let the orphans starve. Or the Dalits which is what this church has chosen to reach out to, where they are seen as subhuman. And the stuff that happens to the Dalits in India on a regular basis, they are the lowest of the caste system, and so they're like less than animals. And they're treated like utter trash, and there's no justice for them. And after generations and generations and generations of being told that again and again and again, these people have lost any sense of dignity. Imagine what it's like to be told you are made in the image of God. That God sees you, Dalit. That God sees you and values what you are going to become so much that He would set a price tag on you of His own life. Imagine how that radically can transform a nation. Imagine how the power of the gospel to come into somebody and to speak life and justice and dignity and flourishing like it did at Malachi, like it's doing at Haiti, like it will do in India and China. Now that the gospel is spreading and flourishing, I'm totally confident that the gospel is going to turn those nations upside down. Right side up, I should say. But you know what? It all starts with someone going. It starts with prayers that God would raise up a Samuel or a hundred Samuels in those nations. That He would bring revival to these people even though they may in the moment be in the depths of wickedness and idolatry and misery and degradation. Christ's cross is big enough to unify any gap. That's why I'm I'm excited that we're in Haiti and India. But I want to talk to you now about Israel. 
Because if you thought (laughs) India and Haiti were bad, I just want to brace you. Like, buckle up. This is, this is a rough one. I don't, I honestly, I got done with the first service and it was kind of like, oh, I don't want to talk about that again. And yet God's love perseveres. His justice come and his love perseveres. So let's talk about this. I want to talk to you about the Levites concubine. We're in 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel is coming when the people demand a king. They've been under the rule of judges for like 400 years, right? Well, at the end of the book of Judges, we get a picture of what Israel looked like. And it's really disgusting. In Judges 19, we're told this story of a Levite, right? And the Levite is coming down and he's had this unfaithful concubine. He's not supposed to have concubines. That's like a mistress. He's supposed to have a wife, one wife, but he's got probably a wife and concubines. And so this one was unfaithful to him and she escaped and ran down to Bethlehem. He chases after her and is saying, you know, I'm going to convince her to come back and be with me. He shows up at this concubine's house. The dad is like, oh, you're going to make an honest woman out of my unfaithful daughter. Thank you so much for coming for her. Here's the deal. We're going to have parties and celebrations. And the dad starts making this all out like it's a wedding feast. Super festive, right? And the Levite's like, no, we really have to be going. Not going to marry. That's the implication. And the dad's like, stay another night. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll have the wine. We're going to cook a feast. It's going to be wonderful. Just stay. Please be here with me. And marry my daughter is the idea. No, we really should be going. And eventually, after five days, the dad or the Levite takes his concubine, leaves, and does not marry her. He's on his way, walking north, back to his home, and he's on his way, and his servant says, let's turn into Jebus, which is the name for Jerusalem before it's renamed. The city, and he, the, the Levite says back to him, we're not going into Jebus, the city of foreigners who don't belong to the people of Israel. Let's pass on to Gibeah. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. Now remember this name, Gibeah belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. When Israel is established as a nation, God sets up all these territories from the sons of Israel, Jacob, 12 tribes, and one of them is Benjamin, and in this city of Gibeah. And it would be like this. If you break down, if your car breaks down in the worst part of Miami, and you get out of your car, and you notice lots of shady stuff everywhere around you, your heart's going a little faster, but you see in the distance a church and the lights on. Where are you going? You're going to the church because that's the people of God. You know, all these other people, I don't know. Everything looks kind of shady, but there's a church and I know I'm safe at the church. That's the people of God. And so that's what the Levite thinks, right? So he goes on, he goes into the city of Gibeah, Benjaminite, people of God. And so what happens when he gets in there is he finds out that this city has become, Israel has become like Sodom. Sodom, the pagan city that God destroyed with fire and brimstone. Why? Because men sought to take advantage of the men, angels, that God had sent into the city. Tried to beat down the door to get them. The city was utterly wicked. And so you read the story of what happens at the end of the book of Judges next to that, and it's unbelievable. This Levite comes into the town square. A man from Ephraim comes, another tribe, and says, hey, you don't understand. Like, you do not want to be in the town square in this city when nighttime comes. 
Well, all right. So they go with this man. He feeds them. And right in the middle of the night, banging on the door, bring out the man, the Levite, the priest, by the way. The Levites were the priests of Israel. Bring him out so that we may know him. What? And so what happens? The Ephraimites. So, so the Benjaminites are clearly wicked. Well then, okay, well let's take another tribe. Here's the Ephraimite who's good. He's, a, he's welcomed him into the home. And the Ephraimite comes to the door and says, how about this? Take my virgin daughter and his concubine instead, but don't touch the Levite. Are you, what? Are you serious? Give your own daughter? What's wrong with you? And then the Levite steps in and he takes his concubine. And what does he do? He seizes his concubine and he made her go out to them. This is one of the most disturbing stories in all of Scripture. It's one that skeptics will use against Christians because it reveals you people are just wicked. Yep. They're wicked. We're wicked. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where the master was until it was light. And the Bible kind of briefly goes through that. But I want you to know this woman is outside the door, tormented, screaming. Comes, falls down at the door, waits there till morning. Why? The next verse clears it up. As her master rose up early in the morning, he went to sleep, grabs his concubine, forces her into that, and he goes to sleep. This is a priest, someone who intercedes on the behalf of the people to keep them safe and close to God. Are you kidding me? Disgusting. And so he goes to her and he said, get up, let's be going. Kind of makes you want to have a time machine, doesn't it? It's just utterly revolting. It's utterly gross. So then he takes her and he takes her home. He puts her on his donkey. He goes home and he, he dismembers her and sends her to all the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's kind of like this. It's a, that, it, it just, it, brace yourselves because it only gets worse, believe it or not. If you watch the evening news, you hear lots about horrible stories and tragedies and murders and you can get callous to it. But imagine receiving in the mail an arm that's bruised. And God stirs the heart of his people And so 400,000 men from every single tribe, with the exception of Benjamin, come together to avenge this one woman. Now think about that. Think about the heart of God in that. He would draw 400,000 men to avenge this one woman. And so he brings them together at Mitzpah. Remember that. That's like their hub, Mitzpah. And so go on. Next slide. They go into Gibeah. They, they slaughter the armies. The first two attempts fail. Then the third one they go in. They draw them out. 
They conquer them, but they don't stop there. They've brought justice to Gibeah because all the different cities of Benjamin said, no, we're not giving up these evil men. We're going to defend them. And so they get conquered. But the bloodthirst of Israel at this point doesn't stop. They go to every single town. Brace yourself. They kill every man, woman, child, animal. They burn down every city. And the only ones who survive are these 600 men who fled. Disgusting. They're avenging the death of one woman and in return, without the consent of God or the blessing of God, after they impose justice on Gibeah, they commit mass genocide. And then, it's not done, they feel bad about it. And so the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin after they commit this genocide. And they said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left since we've sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for our wives? So conveniently, when it works for us, we're going to keep the law of God and respect God. And when, even though God never asked us to make this vow. And so listen, this is what their response is. Where do we get these wives? Well, we're going to go to Jabesh Gilead because Jabesh Gilead did not come out and give us men to help in the genocide. So we're going to go there. We're going to slaughter that entire town except for the virgins. The virgins we're going to kidnap and we're going to take back to Shiloh. What? Shiloh is the place where the tabernacle is. Shiloh is the place where the priest is. This is where you come for the feast. This is where, like the hub, this is where God Himself dwells. And you're getting into this trafficking. Hear that? Trafficking. Kidnapping these women. Giving them to other women. And all with the blessing of the elders. And they bring them to Shiloh and auction them off to the Benjaminites. Benjamites. But that's not enough. So they didn't have enough of them. So what do they do? Then the elders say, hey, there's a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards. And if the daughters of Shiloh... So here they come. God is not... He wants you to be angry. He wants you to be shocked by this. So here the women come and they come out dancing to the Lord. Worshipping, like which rarely happens in Israel in these days. And so the elders say, go grab the women who come out dancing. The daughters of Shiloh. Snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And then they even conspire on how to cover this up. So they say, when their fathers or brothers complain to us, we'll say to them, do us a kindness by helping them. Because we did not get wives for them during the war. And, you know, you're innocent. God won't blame you for letting your daughters be kidnapped and giving them over since you didn't give them. How many fans of Israel do we have in here right now? How many of you feel like you want to go home and bathe? Utterly disgusting. These are the people of God. Surely, if you're God, the holy God... And they have made a brothel out of your tabernacle. I'm done. I'm so done with those people. 
And so it moves on, and that's exactly what the Benjaminites did. And while the girls were dancing, each man caught one, carried her off to be his wife. And at that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each one to their own inheritance. And in those days, this is how the book of Judges ends. You've heard Tom and Matt mention this often. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what he saw fit, or what is right in his own eyes. This is an unbelievably, remarkably wicked period in the history of Israel. They have no fear of God whatsoever. And so go on. You see it in other books too, in the book of Ruth. Boaz, this nice man, loves Ruth. He wants to take care of her. She's widowed. He comes to her, but he says, don't leave my fields. You have to stay here in my fields. Don't go to another one and glean. I've told my men not to touch you. Why does he have to say that? Unless this is just rampant. Utter lawlessness. No safety for women. No sanctity of life whatsoever in this time period. She's the grandmother. Ruth is the grandmother of David. This is right before Samuel comes on the scene. And it's utterly, utterly wicked. And so then you get into 1 Samuel and you see the examples that we have in in Hophni and Phinehas who are the the two sons of of Eli who take advantage of the people. They exploit them, take their sacrifices. We find out they're the ones who decide, hey, let's carry the ark into battle because God is just our lucky charm. And if we carry it out, surely he won't be humiliated. We'll just, it's like they have God hostage. And if we bring him out, God is too proud to be humiliated. So he'll have to win. And then God lets himself be captured and he lets the Israelites be destroyed. Just like Christ will go the way of the cross and he will be humiliated. And so Hophni and Phinehas, what do they do? Eli says, I've heard from all of Israel how you guys are laying with the women who are serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle in Shiloh. Now think about this. The most dangerous place for a woman to be at this particular time in history is at the very tabernacle of God. When Eli sees Hannah praying, what does he think? When she's praying with no words coming out, she's just drunk. This place is a total zoo. I mean, if you're God and you've got the button... I mean, seriously. Done. I'm so sick of this. How does he do this? And so he goes on. And you see the fates of Eli and Dagon. Tom talked about, or Dagon. And he, Tom talks about this, how Dagon, this idol of the Philistines falls and its head is severed and its hands fall off. And then Eli hears that the ark is taken and he falls and his neck is severed, broken, and his sons, his two hands are broken off from the line. What is God saying? Just like he said to Benjamin, you are no better than Sodom. He's now saying to Israel, you're no better than the Philistines. You are even the ones who worship in my tabernacle. You're worse than them. You have lost your way. The judgment that comes on you is the same one that came upon them. Next slide. 
And so Samuel 4, 19, 21 comes along and the wife of Phineas is pregnant. She's about to give birth. She's heard that the ark is taken, that her father-in-law, Eli, has died and she bow- and her husband and his brother. And she bows down. She has a baby and she names the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel. The glory has departed from Israel. He's no longer with us. Look at what's happened. He's gone. He's been captured. We've been decimated. Our land is entirely wicked. Our priest has been killed. Our, his sons have been killed. The whole thing is falling apart. I don't even want to bring a child into this world. Ichabod. Have you ever been there? Even if it's your own fault, like the judgment comes back on you, you've done something horribly stupid, your life spirals out of control. I've been there. It's like, anyway. And you think God's gone. Like his anointing, his love for me has finally run out. I'm finally done. Israel, the Benjaminites, they're all left in this state of we are finished. Everything has gotten so corrupt, so gross. We are so humiliated. And God is gone. He's gone. Been there? Divorce, bankruptcy, addictions. And you feel like God has left you. And so what comes next? The Lord then takes the ark and He goes behind the enemy lines. And He brings tumors and rats to all these Philistine cities, the cities that oppress His people. And He goes on a tour. He goes from Aphek down to Ashdod, over to Gath, up to Ekron. And then He beelines for Beth Shemesh. And that's what Paul or Tom talked about last week. Really beautiful. That they set the ark on this cart and they these these nursing, these mothers... Uh, cows are walking and they say if they can go to Beth Shemesh with nursing calves behind them and not have the instinct to turn back, then we'll know it's from God. And so these calves go straight to Beth Shemesh. And that's at the end of 1 Samuel 6, that's what we read, that they come into Beth Shemesh. And everybody goes, the Philistines go, well, clearly this is of God. And the Israelites start rejoicing. But listen to the way it's stated. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. What's happening when the ark of God returns? They are reaping what they have sown. They are going to reap what they have sown. And when they lifted up their eyes to the ark, they rejoiced to see it, not because they loved God, but because their good luck charm is back. And so you see in the next passage, Beth Shemesh, it's interesting, this city where the ark comes, it's not just any city. It was a city in the Old Testament that was specially set aside for the Levites. Who are the Levites? The priests. The religious leaders. And so this ark beelines into Beth Shemesh. And he struck 70 of the men. And that's an important number because 70 is the number of the elders of Israel. 70 elders ordered the women of Jabesh-Gilead to be kidnapped. Seventy ordered them to be taken to Shiloh. Seventy ordered 
the, the women at Shiloh dancing to be kidnapped. And now God is coming into the city of the priests, which, by the way, has been there for 300 years under Israelite control. And they haven't thought to change the name of Beth Shemesh, which in Hebrew literally means the house of Shemash. And Shemash is the Canaanite sun god. Like if, if we named our church the Church of Allah... You'd think after 300 years of maybe getting serious about the worship of God, we might think about changing it. No, not these priests. They could care less. And so they look in the ark and God strikes them dead. And the people are going, who can stand before this God? He's too holy. Get him out of here. Get him out of here. And here's some passages that talk about the 70 being the number of elders. But moving moving on. So they say, get it out of here. They sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath Jerim, which interestingly used to be called Bela. They had since Baal. Get it? They changed their name to Kiriath Jerim because they didn't want to be named after an idol. And they said, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down, get it out of here. Take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. Now, Kiriath-Jerim is a border city between the territory of Judah and Benjamin. He's made this trek that started all this wickedness, all the unraveling of Israel started in Benjamin. And who are the Benjaminites now? They are a devastated, hopeless, shameful, decimated in numbers. And all of their children are the children of trafficking. Every one of them. They're a humiliated tribe. They are the lowest, the least. Even though the name Benjamin means son of my right hand, they have been utterly wiped down to the floor, into the dirt. And God makes a beeline from the city of the priest and He's on His way to Benjamin. He's coming back to the most desperate where all of this started. Stunning. And so Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning 20 years go by with the ark sitting up on this hill in Kiriath-Jerim, just sitting there, Israel wants nothing to do with this anymore. Like, if the priest can't stand before it, then we don't know what to do. Nobody can contend with the holiness of God. And so Samuel comes. Remember Samuel? Like, he's the son of Hannah who comes, this one woman in a nation where no priest, no judge, no Israelite is screaming out for revival. This one woman comes whose one ambition is to have a son. And she says, you know what? I want more than a son. I want this nation to turn to you, O Lord. And here, here is my son. Take him. Consecrate him. Make him the vehicle by which you turn this nation back. I will give up my greatest desire to show that you are my greatest desire. And so he says, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth among you. Here's Samuel, her son. And direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only and He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Do you remember who these people are? Do you remember how disgusting Israel is? God would turn and deliver even them? And so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherahs, all the idols, and they served the Lord with their whole heart. 
for the first time in who knows how many decades and decades and decades, there's a revival in Israel. And so Samuel said, gather all of Israel at Mitzvah. Why? Why does he want them to gather at Mitzvah? Do you remember what happened at Mitzvah? It's where all the people first started out when they launched the mass genocide against Benjamin. Where they started out before they did all of their sinning and getting these women from Shiloh and Jabesh Gilead. They go to Mitzvah and that's where they started. And Samuel is saying to them, come back to the place where you fell. Come back and stand here. Do you see what happens when you trust in your own ways? Do you see the devastation that has come upon our nation? Repent, repent. You can't do it in your own wisdom. Turn to the God whose wisdom is so far above yours. Put away all the other garbage. And so they go to Mitzvah. And they, he says, I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzvah and they drew water, the gift of God coming from the springs there, and they pour it out. And for the first time, Israel is showing humility. I'm not worthy of the blessings you give God. I'm not worthy. And they pour it out back to him. And they fast. And they cry out, we have sinned against the Lord. Oh, those are awesome words. And the Lord hears those words. And so Samuel took a nursing lamb and as he offered as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And as Samuel was offering, as he's offering up the lamb. Don't miss that. As he's offering up the lamb, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. And you can kind of imagine if you're the Philistines and you think, well, we can't contend with Israel because the Ark of the Covenant has struck our men dead. But then you hear, hey, the Ark of the Covenant striking their men dead too. So let's go get them. And so they're on the way and the army is coming as Samuel is slaughtering this lamb. And what happens? As he does so, the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before all of Israel. The beautiful thing about this verse, it's the lamb being slain that triggers the redemption and the victory. Do you hear that? The Lamb being slain triggers the heart of God to bring your redemption. It's not you. You know, I heard a great quote. I was up at a conference and this man said, true Christian leadership is not determined by who sins the least, but by who repents the most. Can you go to God and think, hey, you know, I'm pretty good. Can you go to God and recognize your utter need for Him and how far you fall short? When you stay, when you confess your weaknesses before Him, He is your strength. When Hannah goes to the temple and she prays, Lord, have my son. I've given him to you now. Do mighty things. Do you know what one of her prayers was? The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them He will thunder in heaven. And God has done exactly that through her son. This one man whose faithfulness sparks revival in Israel. In a city, Mitzvah, in Benjamin, the most disgusting, the most despicable, the most decimated, the most hopeless, the most lost of the tribes. And where does Samuel go? Let's 
Next slide. And Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mitzvah and Shane in Benjamin where it all started. And he called it Ebenezer for he said, until now the Lord has helped us. And you've got to take a step back. Don't just read past that. Because what has happened up until now? Utter shame. They've been defeated again and again. Their priests knocked dead. His two sons knocked dead. Their armies routed. The Ark of the Covenant taken. And Samuel, what this literally means is, without fail, God has helped us to this point. What? Yeah. Samuel understood what Romans 8.28 said, and that is this. That God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. There is no Ichabod moment in your life where if you're desperately clinging by your fingernails to the Lord... He will not turn into an Ebenezer. The Lord has helped us. He's brought me through this. He's made all of that, even though it was hard and sad, and I wept bitter tears over that. He's brought me to this day where I can look back at that and say, thank God He's helped me this whole time. And so you get to the end. And by the way, the name Ebenezer is the name of the city from which they lost the Ark of the Covenant. And he names that the place of God's help. And so Samuel finishes his ministry. It tells us that he judged Israel all the days of his life and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, which means house of God, Gilgal, which means roll away and mitzvah. And he judged Israel in all these places. And then it kind of like, it lets you go. And then he went home to Rama every year. But why these three places? They're very significant. He's just set up this stone at Mitzvah, right? And he's going to go to each of these three places. And each of these three places are to remind the people, huge memorials, to remind the people of who God is. So Bethel, what's there? Well, Jacob established this stone memorial in Bethel where he fell asleep as he was fleeing. And what happened? God, the heavens opened up and God's glory came down and the angels came down and God was telling Jacob that he is a God that intercedes, that comes down, who helps. Right? And so he anoints the stone and he calls the place Bethel, the house of God. And it's in the city of, it's in the, uh, the territory of, it is a city of Benjamin. And he reminds them that God comes down. You have that stone. His name is Christ. You have the God who does not leave you in your pain and trouble. He comes down. He is the gateway of heaven. And Samuel goes next to Gilgal on his circuit. And this too is a city of Benjamin. And Gilgal was established. Another big bunch of stones is a memorial there. Gilgal was established when the Israelites came after 400 years of slavery. After 40 years of wandering. They come to the Jordan. They're about to go into the land that God has promised. The equivalent for us is heaven. That's our promised land. And so Joshua parts the Jordan. The ark actually parts the Jordan. And all of Israel crosses through. And then Joshua says, you know what? Go back and get 12 stones. And I want you to roll these stones all the way to Gilgal. And we're going to set a memorial there to remind us of the day when God opened up the promised land to us. And do you know, you remember what Gilgal means? It comes from the Hebrew galal. It means to roll away. 
What do you hear in that? Your entrance into the promised land is guaranteed by the rolled away stone. Jesus. His resurrection. And then this third city where he would go where there would be a stone is Mitzvah. Where he looks back at all the miseries, all the sin, all the hopelessness that Israel has just come through. All their wickedness, the utter wickedness. Remember that? When they're thrown into judgment and lost and confused and on the other side, he goes and all three of these cities belong to this disgusting tribe of Benjamin. And God says, he says to God, God has been my helper to this point. He's never failed me. Those are the pillars of what we believe. Those three stones of Samuel's ministry is the gospel that God comes down. He comes down. He opens the gates of heaven. He comes to roll away stones so that we can be in the promised land. And in the meantime, while we're here, even when we go through trouble, God is our helper. He never fails. And you know what's going to come out of Benjamin? When they pick their first king, it's going to be... They draw lots. And so the first lot, it goes to Benjamin. Wow, the first king, a Benjaminite. That's really bad. Oh, this is kind of embarrassing. Then the next lot goes to a particular clan. Then the next lot is drawn, and you know who their first king is? Saul. Do you know where he's from? The city of Gibeah. The town of the rapists. And Samuel will later tell Saul, the reason God chose you is because you were small in your own eyes. And Samuel falls to pride. Fast forward a thousand years. There's going to be another Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Also a Benjaminite. He's the Apostle Paul. And God, he persecutes Jesus just like Saul will persecute David, both from Bethlehem. And when Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus and says, why are you persecuting me? Saul is redeemed. This Benjaminite is redeemed. And he goes on to write 13 books of the New Testament. He changes his name to the Apostle Paul, which means little one. And he changes the world. Most responsible for the spread of Christianity besides anyone other than Jesus. And so that's what I'm getting at. Becoming small in our own eyes. When Israel has done all this sin, they're all prideful. They're all thinking that they're entitled to do whatever is right in their own eyes. But when they become small in their own eyes and they repent before the Lord, there's no hole too deep that the Lord can't reach in and pluck you out of. There is no hole too deep. And you look through all these stories. You know, Jesus is the high priest. Think of the Levite's concubine. He is the high priest who chased after a bride that he desperately wanted, but she said no. And so what does he do when the judgment comes for her? And by the way, he came to Bethlehem to enter this world like the Levite's concubine. And when the judgment comes, when the banging on the door of the wrath of God comes for us, he's not like the wicked priest who says, not me. He takes us who are utterly deserving of it and pulls us back and gives us sanctuary. And He goes outside the doors. And He is savaged. 
And he is beaten. And his body is broken up for us. He deserves utter glory. And he came to the depths of our misery so that when we fall to the depths of our misery, we are never beyond the hope of eternal glory. He is a good God. He is a good King. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank You so much. Just reading the story, Lord, it makes my heart heavy to see what kind of wickedness we have here in this world and how when we turn from You and we think we can do it on our own and we we try to make it our own way, Lord, we do disastrous things. We bring destruction into our marriages, into our homes, into our businesses, into our personal life, into our health. It's hard to follow after You because we're just covered in this self-absorption Help us to know that Your ways are higher, that Your ways are better. And Lord, as we sit here, Lord, help us not to look back at ancient Israel or the other wicked cultures and say, oh, I'm glad I'm not like them. But that like Paul, we'd recognize we are the chief of sinners. We thank You that You have come into this world to become sin for us, to take it from us and to clothe us in Your righteousness so that someday when we pass on the other side of the Jordan of this life into the other realms on the other side of death, that You will see us radiating. Why? Because You are the God who comes down from heaven. You are the God who rolls away the stone to bring us into Your inheritance. And You are the God who makes all the misery and suffering and hardship in this life beautiful to where we can look at You even when You don't make sense to us and say, I love You and I trust You even when it hurts. You're a good God, Father. Bless this congregation. Bless our efforts to the the people of Haiti, to the people of India. And Lord, I pray that You would raise up mighty Samuels both here and throughout this world, for your gospel's sake and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.